An anachronistic first century comedic drama tells the story of an atheist who discovers knowledge of God through a series of unfortunate events. Are you just watching episode 147? The book of Cl- the book of Clarence, the book of Clarence, <laughs> the book of Clarence, the book of Clarence. Remember to say the name as two syllables. <laughs> Clarence. Clarence. <laughs> Episode 157, the book of Clarence. <laughs> so close. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And boy, are we entertained. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope you are too. Or will be. (laughs) So we had actually a really hard time choosing a movie for January. And I'm hoping we can get this episode out before the end of the month because we're kind of late getting it recorded. But I was really excited to hear that Tim Chafee listens to our podcast. He recommended this movie, and I was like, well, you know, we haven't been able to choose anything else, so mm-hmm. let's let's do Book of Clarence. And I think there's a lot to discuss in this. I'm still kind of on the wall as to whether I like the movie or not. I don't really think that I was the target audience for it, but it definitely gives us a lot of fodder for discussion, so that's a good thing. Some of these movies you think that are like biblical or not biblical in this case, you know, you, you sometimes think, well, there's not going to be anything for us to discuss, but there's so much heresy in this movie. No. And I don't say that lightly, <laughs> but it definitely leaves itself open to a lot of discussion. Out of curiosity, what do you think the target audience is for the Book of Clarence? I think it's definitely aimed at African Americans. Okay. All right. I think they're the target audience. And some of that I got simply from the the set of previews that came before the movie. There was not a single preview that ran before this movie that advertised a movie that appealed to me. Mm. Okay. All right. So I don't think I was the target audience for this movie, but it was uh, interesting. I mean, I did, you know, lean over and make several comments to my movie buddy during the movie because... There was nobody else in the theater. I think there may have been like maybe four other people besides the two of us in the whole theater. Yeah, it's. I had a pretty empty theater too. Yeah, that was opening weekend. I had seven, six or seven previews in mine, and none of them were targeted, you know, at at a specific demographic group. Yeah. Let's see. I had the Omen and the first Omen and Abigail, both of which are horror. Godzilla, yeah, there were several X-Kong, horror movies. Origin, which I don't remember anything about. And Ghostbusters, which I'm looking forward to. And Madame Webb, that I think might be interesting. There was several horror movies, which I thought was interesting, because this was definitely not a horror movie. No, it was no, a comedy. Let's see. Imaginary. Is that the, the Ryan Omen, Reynolds one? Abigail, Madame Webb, and the new Ghostbuster movie. Okay. There's a couple here that I can't read. Sounds like you had had pretty similar ones to mine. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure who the target audience is, but I don't think it was me. Yeah, you know, I sort of thought of it like Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, 
when they mm. when they first started casting it, gotcha. you know, it all they mm-hmm. they said people of color. Right. And and it wasn't because they were trying to present the founding fathers as people of color, but they were trying to make sure that they felt represented in the play the story yeah or yeah. The, the musical you know whatever whatever you want to call it and i it's i some of what i've read about the director says that it was a very similar motivation as far as the casting choices well, that's why i call it anachronistic because i i think that there's so much in this movie and you know i i felt like it was biblically and historically inaccurate to the extreme oh yeah number one yeah and i don't think um, they were going for it and number two, I think that's what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the feeling that I had watching this movie was the same kind of feeling I had watching the 1996 Romeo plus Juliet movie. <laughs> it's Romeo and Juliet, but it's actually spelled with a plus sign. Of course it is. It's basically Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet play, word for word, but set in modern day Los Angeles. <laughs> and so all of the the actions and the scenery and the setting and what people are doing is all modern, but the words are William Shakespeare. And so it's kind of like gives a different spin on an old play because you're seeing it set in a, in a modern setting. And so it makes like the words and stuff make more sense when you see what they mean in a modern context. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like this was kind of the opposite. It was like a modern story told in an ancient setting. Yeah. yeah. So that you were getting a different spin on the modern context of a story that we all hear all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was set in a place where he actually meets Christ, which in modern days, you can't physically meet Christ. So. It, it tells the story of an atheist who physically meets Christ, and it's like almost like a supposedly a modern redemption story told in an ancient setting. Hmm. But we'll get into that more <laughs> later. Yeah. That's where some of the heresy comes in. But, you know, our Western religion is ripe with heresy, so it's like, you know, you can't expect it not to be in a, any modern story, really, about redemption. It's hard to get away from it. I do think there was an agenda, but I do think the story was too disconnected and randomly spliced together to get its point across very well. Hmm. I just felt like there were tons of plot holes and, and it just felt like they threw things in just to make a statement. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's that, that I can agree with. And so the storytelling was really random. And because of that, I think the overall story of the movie maybe suffered because of the I guess the agenda of the movie creator, the director, Mm -hmm. he put what he was trying to do over the actual story of the movie. I think there was a little bit of overreach as as far as, you know, what he wanted to communicate. He said in an interview that he wanted this movie to be a conversation with the audience. And I can understand that. And I could see how he was trying to do that. And I think for the most part, Mm -hmm. he succeeded. But... There were a couple times where I think he just, you know, shouldn't have gone that far off the beaten path <laughs> to uh, yeah. yeah, stuff like the Roman soldiers stopping them for being black. Yeah. Which, you know. I'm going to talk about later. Yeah. yeah. And Benedict Cumberbatch's character was just, <laughs> what in the world? 
<laughs> but overall, yeah. you know, it was enjoyable. Yeah. I enjoyed the experience. But I did actually, go out of the movie going, I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> the more I thought about it, though, the more I was thinking, I don't like the implications. Yeah, I mean, the more you think about it, the more it kind of twists in your head and you're like, maybe I don't like this movie. Yeah. But I've heard people contrast it with a cross between Ben-Hur and The Life of Brian. Yeah. Yep. Monty Python. Yeah, it's a Monty Python movie. So it's like it wants to be a biblical epic, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's too comedic and too anachronistic to fit either role. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you noticed, but the, the font that they used for the title, mm -hmm. that was the Ben-Hur font. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course you would notice. You're a graphic designer. <laughs> <laughs> They're almost mocking. Yeah, it's, I sort of felt like they were trying to go parody. Yeah. But they sort of pivoted and they're like, well, we're not going to do it all the way parody. <laughs> I mean, I liked certain aspects of the movie. I like the fact that they didn't actually mock Christ. Yeah. I, I'm not entirely sure they portrayed him properly, but this could have so easily gone into an anti-Christian movie. Mm-hmm. I think it contains heresy, but I don't think it's anti-Christian. And it's definitely not anti-Christ. But because of the mocking nature of the entire movie, mm -hmm. the comedic aspects, it kind of makes the whole thing feel irreverent. Yeah. Oh, irreverence is a good word for it. Yeah. I think irreverence is probably the best word. to. to I mean, so some people are going to see it in a very negative way because it – in most people's minds, you can't deal with the topic of Christ irreverently without blasphemy. Right. And so I can see why some people are coming out and saying that it's blasphemy because it deals with the whole topic very irreverently. And so, you know, it, it shades into that. Well, blasphemy is literally using God's name in vain, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, using Christ as a secondary character like this, I could see where they're coming from. Yeah. But you're right. I agree with you. I don't think they were misusing Christ. And he definitely was a a secondary character, but he was an important secondary character that... He was the only true Messiah. Yeah, that, in, that informed <laughs> much of the story. Right. Yeah. I remember them saying he was the true Messiah, but I don't ever remember saying that he was the son of God in... In Book of Clarence. Yeah. Well, Mary said it several times. Oh, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Okay. Because he kept pointing, well, he's your son then, because he pointed at Joseph and he says, you're, he's your son. He says, no, no, he's not my son. And he's the son of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So that whole conversation with Mother Mary was definitely, you know, going into the fact that Jesus truly was Though the Immaculate Conception and all of that terminology came afterwards. Yeah. So a little bit. A couple hundred years. <laughs> a little out of context. A, a lot of the topics yeah. in this movie are out of context for the time. But yeah, they do say he's the son of God. They do have where he tells the apostles that he will be killed and, and rise from the dead. That They don't show that in the movie. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they were trying to call into question Christ. Right as the true Messiah and the Son of God. 
I, I think because it's the book of Clarence, it's, it's Clarence's story. And so you only really see Christ where Christ touches on, you know, Clarence. Right. And so I think it is in that aspect a little bit like Ben-Hur because Christ does make an appearance in Ben-Hur, but you only see his feet. If I remember right, his feet and his hands. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen Ben-Hur. <laughs> it was it Ben-Hur or Spartacus that and it was I think it was Spartacus that ended with Spartacus witnessing part of the crucifixion. I don't know. I I don't know that I've seen Spartacus. I've seen Ben-Hur. Yeah. But it was a long time ago. Spartacus I have is to see it again. It. I would recommend Spartacus. Yeah. So anyway, I can sort of see where the Ben-Hur analogy comes from mm-hmm. in this movie. But there's so much that this movie gets wrong, and the irreverent way that it deals with the topics, I think, really, you know, it's, it's going to be one of those movies that you either hate it, yeah. or you love it, or you just want to throw it out with the bathwater, because <laughs> it's... And judging by the audience that it's drawing, I don't think... I think it's going to be a bit of a flop, which is a little sad, yeah. I guess. I think the director accomplished what he set out to. Yeah. You know, the anachronisms, I think... All the ones that bugged us were there on purpose, you know, and he was he was statement making yeah, and <laughs> just wasn't my kind of humor. Yeah. Yeah. The floating people and <laughs> the unholy weed. Yeah. Those were both like, eh, OK, whatever. Yeah. Well, before we get too far into our initial impressions, I do want to mention the music in this movie because it does have I think it's part of the context of the movie that that is important. There is a score. The composer of the score is James Samuel. I hope I'm saying his name right, because it's not spelled like the typical he was way we spell too. James. Okay, he was? Yeah. All right. Yeah. The music is actually quite beautiful. I, I've been listening to the score this afternoon, and just like the movie, it's very anachronistic. So it's it's got these parts of it that kind of feel like like a Middle Eastern or yeah. Asian kind of feel. But then at the same time, it's got a, almost like the kind of music that you would hear like in a police drama or something. So it, it's kind of a mix of that together. And and then on top of that, they've got songs they sing in there that are, I think, a little over the top and definitely cultural. Mm-hmm. So eh, I, I didn't care for the songs at all, <laughs> especially the one in the credits. I like the flavor of the songs, but I didn't mm. like the. Uh, I put <laughs> in my notes that I went into Spotify to listen to it, and four of the songs were blocked from my list because I have it block explicit lyrics. Mm, yeah. So. That's sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will play just a little bit of the score, not the song, yeah. um, yep. just to set the mood for the review. I was a little disappointed that they didn't include more, even through exposition, talk about Jesus. You had said that they talk about Jesus being the Son of God and his crucifixion and his resurrection. I don't remember them talking about Jesus being crucified. And I definitely don't remember him being resurrected. 
Well, that's because it comes after the discussion that Christ has with his apostles. Mm-hmm. I think they come to him and ask about Clarence and, and he says, well, you know, I'm going to be, he, he basically has the last supper thing where he tells them that he's going to, going to die and be resurrected. Yeah. But it was going to be in like three or four days from that. Oh, so and you're so, saying by the time that that final scene with Clarence was, mm-hmm. Christ had not yet been crucified. Arrested. Uh, okay. Yes. All right. Because it showed a scene with Judas kissing Christ on the cheek, didn't it? Yeah. Or was that a flash forward type thing? The book of Clarence ends right at where Jesus is going to be arrested. Because okay. they're like searching for the messiahs or whatever, which I'm, we're going to talk about later because they got the politics. Yeah. And the religious aspects are completely wrong in this movie. So I'm, we're going to have to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that, that you didn't see Christ crucified and resurrected is because it hadn't happened yet at the end of the movie. It was foretold that right. it was going to happen. Jesus told his apostles, it's going to happen. And Some of, and they didn't believe him, just like they do in the Bible. Right, exactly, because <laughs> their, their eyes were still closed. Right. Some of the reviews I read said that they felt like this was still God-honoring and true to the gospel. I disagree. I don't feel like they made any effort to do that. And it might not have been their desire to do so. For all we know, some of it was left on the cutting room floor. (laughs) So That's true. Yeah. The story, utterly fictional as it is, is still Christ adjacent. And I feel it was a missed opportunity that I would like to have seen them take to insert more of the gospel message. I was much more uncomfortable with what I personally perceived as the plethora of Gnostic undertones in the book of Clarence. We'll talk about that here in just a few moments. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure that the gospel needed to be presented any more strongly than it was, but Mm. I, at the whole, I guess if you're going to have a character who is redeemed out of an atheistic denial that God exists, Mm -hmm. like Clarence is, then it really does behoove you to present the gospel, you know, so that he's actually following a true gospel and not, not something else. So I sort of get your point. And and I'm glad that you want to talk about the Gnosticism because that's almost over my head. So I'm happy to have you take the lead on that. Honestly, I probably would have missed it if you hadn't talked about it because I, I kind of did see Clarence as shifting from a belief that God was fake and Mm -hmm. a myth into sure knowledge that God existed and wanted Clarence to have a relationship with him. Yeah. But except the fact that they used knowledge of Christ and not belief in Christ specifically, Mm -hmm specifically knowledge is actually part of the Gnostic undertone. Okay. Well, lead off. Let's get into Gnosticism. So, yeah, Gnosticism is one of those heresies. It's actually one of the earliest heresies to threaten the Christian church. Yeah. Legend has that it actually started with Simon the Magus, uh, or the Magus, however you say that word. (laughs) (laughs) from the book of Acts. And it it really comes down, it's very complicated, 
but I'm going to oversimplify it drastically to the point where it's almost unusable to just two key points. First is that salvation for in Gnosticism does not depend on belief or faith. It depends on knowledge. And that knowledge is of an ultra secret identity of the true God, which is not the God who created everything. That's actually the demiurge and he's actually evil. But if you have been led into the secret brotherhood and given the secret handshake, then you're actually saved by your knowledge, not by your faith. And the second part that was important in in how I read this movie was that Gnosticism believes that all the physical world is evil. It's corrupted. There's absolutely nothing good in it. And that includes the idea that Christ had a human body, at least post-resurrection. So the resurrected Christ wasn't really resurrected. He was just a spirit in the form of a human being. And you can see why that might have a problem. Yeah. So, so much of the Book of Clarence harkens back to these Gnostic traits. When Clarence is pretending for all of Book Two of the movie, the the movie being divided into to three books, uh, one, the first one is... Mm-hmm where he attempts to become the 13th apostle. The second one is where he decides he's going to be a messiah. He's going to claim to be a messiah, a false messiah. And the third one is where he gets arrested and crucified for being a false messiah. And while he is pretending to be a messiah, his catchphrase is knowledge is stronger than belief. And that is exactly the core behind Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Mm -hmm. And when he's saying knowledge is stronger than belief, he's saying, uh, I know the secret that you don't know. And while he was pretending to be the Messiah, he thought the secret that he knew was that God isn't real. But then near the end of the movie, when Clarence is awaiting his crucifixion, Thomas asks him, do you believe now, Clarence? And Clarence responds, but he responds in such a way that actually reinforces what I believe reinforces the Gnostic viewpoint here. He says, no, I don't believe, I know. And that harkens back to the idea that Gnosticism requires a special hidden secret knowledge. And That bugs me because if you look in Romans 10, verses 8 through 10, it says, on the contrary, what does it say? The message is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. This is a message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And knowing isn't any part of that. Mm -hmm. We know from extra biblical sources that Jesus was a real person. Does that get you saved? No. (laughs) No, it does not. Yeah. I guess I kind of read Clarence's statement in a different way. All right. Because it 
came in the context of the phrases that came before that. Thomas says, I saw you walk on water. And Clarence says, that was God. Mm -hmm. And then Thomas says, so you believe? And he says, no, I don't believe, I know. So it was in the context of him literally walking on water and everybody was like wanting to like give him the credit for it. And he was like, no, it wasn't me. It was God. I know it was God. That was the way I read it. I can see that interpretation. While I don't discount that Gnosticism is in this movie, I don't necessarily feel that that phrase alone is talking about some secret knowledge. Okay. I felt like that was the point where he went from, you know, God actually is real. Mm-hmm. And I know it because he did something, you yeah. know, that I saw, that I experienced. And so I know that God is real. That was the way I took it. But I definitely see now that you have mentioned Gnosticism and what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't base it on that quote in the movie, but there's a lot else in the movie oh, yeah. that you could base it on, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I Because I happen to be... In a a fit of weakness, I agreed to teach a Sunday school this semester. (laughs) With everything else on your plate. Yeah, exactly. And like a fool, I decided on a topic for which there was no prepared material. The comparative Christianity. Basically, I ended up choosing to do a weekly look at the various denominations. And we're going to end with cults, which Mm -hmm. will include some that have very Gnostic origins. Mm-hmm. So it happened to be on my mind. So all that to say, that entire rabbit trail to say, maybe I'm just being overly sensitive to it. Well, I'm sure that there is some Gnosticism in here. And I get your point about yeah. him never saying that he believed in Christ. And belief is definitely important because that's the way it's phrased through scripture. But I also think that with belief comes some knowledge of Christ. Because if we, what, what is it, um, those who have seen have believed and those who have not seen. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's Thomas. It's actually talking to Thomas. Yeah. John twenty twenty nine. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So I kind of feel like, in, at least in this instance, it's, it's a little bit more like experience. Mm-hmm. Like Thomas and his fictitious brother in this case. Yeah. Clarence actually can experience Christ and believe through the knowledge that, you know, it's like, because Thomas wouldn't believe that Jesus arose from the dead until he stuck his fingers in his hands. Right. And so I, I think it's kind of interesting that they set Clarence up as being doubting Thomas's brother, because he, through the whole movie, he's completely doubting the whole thing. You know, he's <laughs> like, he's, he doubts God, he doubts everything. And then he comes to the sure knowledge that God does exist and that he can have a relationship with him. And so it just bypasses belief completely and goes straight to knowledge. So I think that in biblically, Thomas is very much the same kind of character. It's like he he only believes what he can, you know, put his hands in and and make it sure knowledge. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. then he knows that Christ rose from the dead because he saw him and he stuck his hands in the holes and all that. So that's actually one of the reasons that I enjoyed, because it was such a an interesting concept, you know, to because Thomas mm-hmm. means twin. So right. making Clarence Thomas's twin brother was just such a, a neat idea. I, I really liked it. But, you know, it's like we said, there are other references to Gnosticism. 
In book one, Clarence decides he wants to become the 13th apostle. Apostle. And Mm -hmm. as sort of an impossible challenge, reminiscent of Hercules and the, how what was it, seven tasks or 12 tasks or something like that. Judas says, go free the slaves, the gladiator slaves over in this one part. Mm -hmm. Clarence succeeds in freeing one with some remarkable, unexplained martial skills. (laughs) Oh, he's a street kid. Yeah. Yeah, grew up on the street, therefore he's a perfect fighter. Sure. Okay. So later on in book two, when he's made all this money on his con, he gives up all his material wealth and buys all the remaining slaves owned by this one guy. And that uh, tossing away material wealth for this abstract freedom is very Gnostic. In a conversation with Mary, who for some reason looks much older than she should be, maybe it was just hard living, who knows, she, Mary, recounts a, a story about bringing clay birds to life. And this story only appears in two places. One is called The Infancy of Thomas, which is a sort of, I think it's a companion book to the Gospel of Thomas. And the other one is in the Quran. <laughs> so it's, you know, the the source material here is is very, very... Extra biblical. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, with a very Gnostic bent. Right. So part of me is not sure that it's intentional. It may just be that he said, oh, you know what? The stories in, included in the Gospel of Thomas are pretty cool. Let's use that. And maybe they just weren't cognizant of the heresy that sprung out of that entire thing. I don't know. I, I would say that they are definitely pushing their toes past the line of mm. adding to Scripture. Because, you know, there's the whole scene where where Jesus stops the stoning of the of Mary Magdalene in the case of this movie and he like stops the stones midair and there's none of what actually happens in scripture it's portrayed completely wrong so it's like that is biblical that whole scene is supposed to be biblical but they went far beyond what it should have been I might be wrong but I think the stopping of stones in midair I think that's from Thomas too oh really yeah yeah so it just might be that he was led astray by reading extra biblical Possibly. sources. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's in the movie and it needs to be discussed as being heresy because it is not biblical. Right. Yeah. And I don't remember if we mentioned, but the Gospel of Thomas was written a good 150 years after Christ. No, according to this movie, it was pinned during the events because right, exactly. Thomas carries a book with Thomas him. Thomas <laughs> working on it in a bound book, <laughs> which bugged me. The two anachronisms that really got under my skin the most was Thomas writing in a book. He might as well have been using a ballpoint <laughs> pen. And <laughs> Judas walking around fiddling with, with prayer, prayer beads. beads. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it... It served Judas's character because, you know, he was a mean guy here. Yeah, yeah. he's supposed to look like a villain. A yeah, <laughs> And he definitely fits that bill very yeah. well. So, yeah, it fit his character. 
But so going back to the original two points of Gnosticism that bugged me on how they were presented in a favorable light in Book of Clarence, the first one is material bad, spirit good. And that one is really easy, as far as I'm concerned, to counter with scripture. Mm -hmm. The first one is (laughs) you go back to Genesis 1, man. All of Genesis 1, but Genesis 131 in particular, God saw all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So that's 131. And in Genesis chapter 1, the word good, which in the original Hebrew means pleasing, delightful, or well, is used seven times. Seven times God says, this is good, this is good, this is good. He's making the material world. There's just no way that God calls something good that is corrupt. Now, it gets corrupted. It, exactly. <laughs> After. It gets corrupted. Romans 8.22 says, for we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So we know that creation, along with humanity, will be redeemed mm-hmm. at the second coming of Christ, or depending upon your eschatology before or after. I, I don't understand how all that works. So <laughs> eschatology is one one part where my brain just starts leaking out of my ears. Uh, that generates quite a picture. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Material versus spirit, after all. We know that Jesus was physical. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the mm-hmm. Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. So Jesus being physical could not have been corrupt. That defeats the entire purpose. And we know that those who say that Jesus was not physical, because even back in the early church, as the apostles were still nurturing their early congregations, in Second John chapter 7, it says, excuse me, Second John verse 7, because Second John is only one chapter, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So there's no question that the Gnostic position that material bad, spirit good is completely, you know, disputed in the Bible. And Bible good, Gnostic bad. (laughs) And incidentally, the the same argument that you brought up with Genesis 131 is the same argument that young earth creationists use to prove that God did not use evolution Mm -hmm. and that the earth is young because he created it perfect. And that means that all of the corruption that we see in the world today had to have come after Adam and Eve sinned. So everything prior to that sin had to have been perfect because God called it very good. God would not call a corrupted evolution, you know, red and tooth and claw creation very good. And so all of the the corruption that we see in creation, not just in man, is a result of the fall. Mm. And that means that evolution did not occur prior to, you know, there there was none of this survival, survival of, the, of fittest. the fittest. Yeah. Right. It's a powerful argument. It's I I won't deny it. You and I have talked old earth creation and young earth creation multiple times before, and I am content. (laughs) 
arguing it over a cup of joe in heaven and going, yeah, I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) The other part about secret knowledge is a a bit harder, you know, to counter because it's so abstract. Also absurd. (laughs) But scripture is clear that knowledge is not part of what's required for salvation and that God wants everyone to know. The idea that it would be a secret knowledge to know the true God is completely antithetical to the God as he's revealed in the word. Romans 3.23, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. The purpose of Jesus is to provide a path to salvation for Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and master. That was Romans 3.23. In John 3, verses 17 through 18, Jesus is recorded as saying, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. So Mm -hmm. this idea that only those with special knowledge, special handshake or fist bump or whatever are going to go to heaven is completely opposed to what God lists as intending in Scripture. Okay. Gnosticism bad. And like I said, I don't know that, that the director intended... This is a Gnostic gospel, but that is the way I feel it came across. And my worry is that a nascent Christian or somebody who is considering belief views this and gives it more than, you know, more weight than it actually deserves. But we got to trust the spirit to, to lead people the right way. Yeah. And you know what? I think almost that that is why it's a blessing that they did not present the gospel in this movie. Because that's a good point. I don't feel like this movie was meant to be a religious movie Mm -mm. that is presenting the gospel. And so it's supposed to be a comedy, slightly irreverent. Well, a lot irreverent, (laughs) but (laughs) that doesn't necessarily mock the name of Jesus. And I think it accomplished what it was doing. And anybody who watches this movie thinking that it's presenting the gospel and thinking that they're, it's not anywhere close to like watching The Chosen where you think you're seeing a presentation of a real Jesus. Right. Yeah. I don't even think that's The Chosen does that very well. But the intent of The Chosen is to present mm-hmm. what they believe is the real Jesus in, in the context of the people who walked with him in right. real life. And, and I'm giving it slightly probably... I don't want to get into discussion of the chosen because we we don't (laughs) want to go into a whole second commandment uh, argument here either. So we don't want to go into that. But the reason why I don't think this movie is that is because the whole context of the movie is so bizarre and out of place and anachronistic that I don't think that anybody watching it would think they are seeing an accurate portrayal of Christ. And so if, like you said, a nascent Christian goes in here and goes, oh, this must be great philosophy, then <laughs> they're completely already got the wool pulled over their eyes because mm-hmm. there is nothing biblical about this movie. 
the the context of it is wrong. Yep. The political and social structure is wrong. I really think this was meant to be a parable about a modern yeah. redemption story set in the time of Christ, which Gnosticism aside, maybe the person, you know, that is being redeemed in the story still has a long ways to go mm-hmm. to to find true redemption. And part of that, you know, what I thought was actually really interesting was that Clarence, when he was brought before the Romans after he was arrested, he actually confessed all of his sins publicly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good and point. Yeah. that is the first step to belief is confessing that you're a sinner. And so when you put it in the context that his redemption may have been authentic because he did this correct steps. It just wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't in the way that we present the gospel today. Yeah. And so That's a good catch. And then when the miracle is performed, he admits that it's God performing that miracle and not him. Mm-hmm. Coming as a con man who was playing on the people who were watching him all this time, you know. So I see true repentance in the Clarence character. And it didn't save him. You know, his repentance, you know, you could have said, well, he was confessing into it also that he wouldn't get crucified as a messiah. Right. <laughs> but he was still going to get crucified because he had, well, anyway. So when he when he walked on the water, God wasn't doing him any favors. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that there was just enough in this movie that you could say there was a redemptive arc for yeah. Clarence. I don't know that they were trying to present it as a true redemption in the Christian sense. Right. And yep. yes, there is Gnosticism in this movie. I am not disputing you on mm-hmm. that, that at all. I'm just th- saying that I don't think it's enough to lead people astray yeah, because I, I don't think that was the point of the movie. I, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. And like I said, because it, it, I think I'm probably just a little overly sensitive to it. Yeah, I think so much of this movie is out of context that it's just it just adds to the inconsistencies of the story, yeah. in my opinion. Okay. I had a sort of a mini theme that I, I just wanted to touch on. A big motivation for the main character in the movie Clarence's, the Apostle Thomas's twin brother. And Clarence has a grudge against his brother because he says that Thomas left their ailing mother to follow Jesus. And at one point early in the movie, he says, left our mother on her deathbed, but then the mother is in a later scene. Yeah, she wasn't dying. So it must not have been her deathbed. But anyway, I wanted to briefly touch on it. It was obviously a reference to a couple different scripture. In Luke 14, 26, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And in Matthew 19, 29, it says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name, will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. And this is actually an argument that you get from non-Christians all the time. Well, are we just supposed to give up everything? It's even referenced in Nicodemus when Nicodemus comes to Christ and says, what must I do to be saved? And Christ says, sell all you own. And I wish I had looked up the scripture. Yeah, I think you're getting them mixed up. That was the rich young ruler. Oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Came to That's him. right. Yep. Different story. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus <laughs> and, <laughs> and says, what must I do? 
and he says, go and sell all you own. And he he basically balks at it. But Christ is making the point that you must be ready to give up everything you have, even yourself. And, you know, if you follow a magazine like The Voice of the Martyrs, then you see people and you hear about people who have literally had to do this, given up Mm -hmm. everything they've owned, even up to and including their lives. Especially Muslims who convert. Oh, yes. In a lot of the Islamic countries, if you convert, if you change religions, it's a death penalty. Uh, automatic, and, yeah. And not to mention, you know, having your parents and uh, pretend like you don't even exist anymore, like you were never born. So, yeah, it, it is tough. We know that Peter was married. Or yes. rather, we and know had a that mother-in-law. Peter had a mother-in-law. Um, he might have been a widower by that point. We We don't really know. But we know he had a mother-in-law because she was healed. Yes. So, And he left her sick. She was sick when he left her and yep. brought Jesus to her eventually. Yeah. So it's we don't know the details behind. And James and John left their father mm-hmm. with the nets. And, yeah. And, you know, they did the right thing. They were walking with Christ for about three years. And after that, they all went off and served the gospel in their own way, but we don't know that they didn't return, you know, a work from home environment or something like that. So we don't know how this impacted their family environments, but let's face it, all but one of the apostles was killed for their faith. And the one that wasn't died for his faith because he was exiled to... Dial of Patmos. Patmos. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name of the island. They all gave it up, and and there are people today who are still giving it up for their faith. So that's a message that we should be walking away with, is when we choose to follow Christ. We have a new family. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we don't care about our old family, but— We give priority. We give priority to our new family, yes. Tough choices in a lot of culture, yeah. I just wanted to bring that up because it was such a an important motivation for Clarence. I felt it deserved a mention. Yeah, definitely. Before we move on, I do want to remind you that Air You Just Watching is listener supported. We want to give special thanks to our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman for their generous monthly support. You can also give to us financially by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Patreon or Patreon.com slash Are You Just Watching? If you are not able to give to us financially, we could support our podcast by sharing the word. You just tell your friends and family about us or post our current episodes on your social media. Money can't purchase what you guys would do for us if you just spread the word and share our podcast. We appreciate all of you so much. Thank you very much. If you also want to give us feedback on this episode, you can go to areyoujustwatching.com slash 147 for this particular episode. You can also text or call us at 513-818-2959. If you call us, make sure you leave a voicemail. You can also email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And if you have watched something recently and want to give us a quick little snippet of a Christian worldview application to what you watched, then feel free to either record that on a voicemail or send it to us via the feedback email. 
any way that you want to get that to us, and we might include it in a future episode. We love to hear how you're applying your Christian worldview to your entertainment. In addition to that, you can join our Facebook community by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash community. But if you really want to interact with Tim and I and the rest of our fans, we strongly encourage that you join us on our Discord server, which you can get an invitation to by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. Once again, thank you so much for listening to our podcast and back to our discussion. Well, one of the themes that I thought was the strongest in this, and and I think it has a lot to do with the agenda Mm -hmm. of the director of the film. As I said earlier, I really felt like this movie was a modern tale set in a, you know, in the time of Christ. And one of the tales that he's telling, and it's so obvious it slaps you in the face, like as soon as you start watching the movie is racial tension mm-hmm. between blacks and whites. And they set it up where the Romans are white and all of the other people are black, basically. And it's a little bit of a shock. And I'm not necessarily against the portrayal of, you know, all of the b- biblical characters that we're familiar with as being yeah, black. That, the good guys. That, that's not the good guys are black and the bad guys are white. That doesn't necessarily put my back up. I didn't mind it. But at the same time, it is definitely anachronistic. It's not accurate, both historically and biblically. It's not accurate. And I apologize to those who want to say that Jesus had to have been black. He probably was middle brown. Mm-hmm. But Mediterranean makes the most sense. Yeah. Or, or just Middle Eastern. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The ultra black people of the time of Christ were probably like in Ethiopia and they didn't interact that much with the Middle Eastern cultures because of the distance involved. So they may have had some that were brought in as slaves, but Rome really didn't have much to do with Africa historically. So I don't think that we would have anywhere but northern Africa. Yeah, I just did a quick browse because I'm definitely not an expert on the Roman Empire. But a quick browse, I'm finding a lot of, you know, scholars saying that there really was very little interaction with Rome with much of Africa. So I think that to set this kind of modern, I would say not just modern, but American hang up on black versus white. Mm hmm. It is definitely a Western American culture hangup yeah. that we're trying to put into a completely different cultural setting. While it is makes sense from the story that the director is trying to tell, I do think it brings to light from a modern context what the ethnic and cultural stereotypes and tensions in the Roman Empire may have consisted of. So what I'm trying to say is, I thought it was interesting from the standpoint of the Romans did think they were superior. Oh, yeah. They did treat their conquered people like peasants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were I the think. the source of Arianism that the Third Reich later latched on to. Yeah, to some extent. But also, Rome was to its world what the U.S. is today and that it was a mixing pot because it had mm-hmm. conquered so many people. And pulled in so many different ethnicities that there wasn't like a typical Roman. Yeah. So it all depended on what part of Rome you were in. And so there wasn't, I don't think the tensions were racial. They may have been ethnic, but they weren't racial. 
racial tension didn't exist back then. <laughs> I do want to say that I can understand where the director's coming from with this. Oh, yeah. I do, too. It I helps see the black community watching it to sympathize with, you know, the good guys of the movie by seeing them facing the same issues that right. black Americans face today, like driving while black. Yeah. As a white middle-aged, middle-class male, it boggles my mind. But it's a real thing that black men and women have to worry about. And still, to this day, despite the fact that it's been happening since the 1950s and 40s. So, yeah, I can see where he was establishing a relationship between that intended portion of his audience. My point in bringing this up is not to diss the story right. that he's telling. Exactly. I'm, what I'm pointing out is that, to me, it actually helped me have a different perspective on the Roman and Jewish relationship, mm -hmm. because we know from Scripture that the Romans were not exactly nice to their conquered people. They treated them like slaves. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that in the context of what I would consider a modern black versus white, it actually enlivened that story for me. Yeah. But at the same time, I wanted to raise the understanding that mm. it was not racial tension in Rome. Right. It was something different. And I found a, a scholar on Quora that was answering the question, did the Romans care about race and where people were from? And I thought this was a very interesting list because he talked about the different people's that were in the Roman Empire and the stereotypes that went with their ethnicity. So the Semitic peoples, which would have been the Jews, the Syriacs, and the Carthaginians, were stereotypically savvy and untrustworthy, and the Jews were singled out as being religious zealots. The Easterners, in general, were considered effeminate and unremarkable in war. The Gauls <laughs> were considered simple-minded, brave, but lazy. The Iberians were considered wild and ultra-violent by nature. Germans were considered cunning, warlike, and extremely dangerous overall, and the Greeks were considered nerdy, effeminate, and suited only to scholarly work. That's because they, so, all, they all were trogas and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so They, they I thought really that was, knew how to party, though, I'll tell you. Right. So the whole skin color thing is a modern concept, but at the same time, they were judging people by their ethnicity. And this is biblically accurate to say this because when Paul started his missionary journeys, he ran into the assumptions based on his ethnicity and where mm -hmm. he was from that he was not a Roman citizen. They just assumed everybody that was ethnically Jewish, culturally Jewish, were not citizens. That was just the assumption. And so in Acts 22, 22 through 29, there's the story where he's arrested as they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, what are you going to do for this man is a Roman citizen? And the Roman came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he says, yes, I, he said. And the commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. So there was a big difference between citizenship and a conquered people. And the assumption, I guess, when they were dealing with Jews was that they were 
a conquered people mm-hmm. and slaves, basically. And so they just assumed that he was not a citizen. And, and then again, earlier in Acts, in Acts 16, 37 through 39, he was actually imprisoned. And when they tried to release him, he said, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens and threw us in jail. And now they're going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. So this was a an actual thing in the Roman culture yeah. is like, if you were a citizen, you had all of the rights of a citizen, you had to be judged in a proper trial, you couldn't be arrested without, you know, an actual crime that, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of like today where, you know, if you're arrested, they have to have a legitimate reason to arrest you. They in could theory. arrest, in theory, <laughs> yeah. They could arrest anybody who is not a citizen, scourge them, and even put them to death without a trial mm-hmm. in Roman culture. But if you were a citizen, you had the rights, you know, to, to see a judge and all that kind of stuff. So I don't remember specifically, but I think that the penalty for denying uh, Roman citizenship might have been death. I know it was very... Very harsh. Yeah, harsh. (laughs) And that's why they were so scared when they realized that they had publicly beat a citizen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he could have, he could have gone, you know. Yeah, so there is a difference, I guess, in the way that, that he portrays this problem of racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the way that he presented the story, I think it, it said a lot not only about the modern story he was telling in the ancient in the ancient setting but also you know bringing to light some of that tension that did exist in Jerusalem of that day you know because they were a conquered people living under a very yeah. harsh very mean and very vicious arrogant conquerors who didn't care that they didn't even really treat them like people just to be clear there was also a very violent group of jewish citizens uh, that later I think they became called the Maccabees mm, of which yeah. Judas was Judas Iscariot was a member so I yeah. mean yeah there there was you know bad feelings all around yeah well the Romans were constantly having to put down rebellions yeah. so it's like they conquered the land and the land was never at rest and so you can kind of empathize with them from a standpoint of, you know, we're just trying to rule these obnoxious people and give them, you know, give them the proper rule of law and, and they keep fighting us over it. And yep, we're trying to enlighten them and they just won't listen. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can see it from both sides, but definitely, I mean, just like in my initial comments, I commented about the William Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet set in a modern day Los Angeles just like that story works in a completely wrong setting, mm-hmm. I think that the Book of Clarence, the story he's trying to tell, works just fine in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. It works. And it's an enlightening parable, yeah. <laughs> you know, from both sides. But I did want to bring out the fact that it is definitely presenting a non-historical Jesus because we don't know what Jesus looked like. Right. But I can almost guarantee you he wasn't black. And I can almost guarantee you he wasn't white either. <laughs> so he was probably Middle Eastern, a middle brown. And Jokes we, on us, he was Mongol. <laughs> you know, there may have been a lot more Eastern influence in the Middle East back then. I don't know. We don't know. 
Who knows? And you know, the fact is that if you look at Christ and you see someone that you can associate with, good on you. <laughs> well, it won't matter when we get to heaven what no, ethnicity it, Jesus was. Right. Is, I guess, is the correct. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was, is they kind of mocked the white Jesus in there as well. Yeah, and that you had, me. And you brought it up because it was Benedict Cumberbuck playing the Benjamin, who you think is sort of black through the whole thing until they clean him up mm-hmm. and Jesus heals him and he starts like shooting coins out of his hands. And That, and, by the way, is another apocryphal story. I imagine. Yeah. And then when he's being crucified as a false messiah, which I'm going to get to in a minute, alongside Clarence, he says, and this guy down here is is painting an awful picture of me. And he's like <laughs> painting this like the typical white Jesus picture, you know, they're mocking the idea that we have this mm-hmm. portrait of Jesus that we use to, you know, beat other people over the head. This is what Jesus looked like. We yeah. don't know what Jesus looked like. I don't believe he was a comely man. I don't think he was handsome because it says in, in Isaiah right. that that he that he was not. And so, you know, it to me it doesn't matter what Jesus looked like, right. but I do want to be as historically accurate as possible and tell you that he was not black. He was so, not white. I'm sorry. Yeah. He was not white. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, that's that's about all we could say historically, yeah. is that he was neither of the extremes. He was probably somewhere in the middle. The last comment that I wanted to make about this movie from a, from the historical standpoint was the modern heresy of healing. The whole middle book of the Book of Clarence is the story of him mm-hmm. being the false messiah and, and doing, the, you know, the fake healings and all of that. And unfortunately... We have a lot of that, you know, going around in our culture today. And I really encourage everybody, if you haven't looked up, he's actually another member of the Christian podcast community. Justin Peters, you can find him. He has a long-standing ministry. You can find him at justinpeters.org. And he does a lot of speaking on the false healings and mm. the prosperity and wealth and health uh, gospel. Yeah, they sort of go hand in hand, prosperity gospel yeah. and, and healing. Yeah, so I just strongly encourage you, if you haven't looked up Justin Peters' ministry then and haven't heard him speak, go look him up, look him up on YouTube, and just listen to one of his talks. It, it's mind-blowing when you see a lot of the fraud of you know these movements right now. And he's one that it makes it easy because he can actually go in to these, well, before they knew him. He knew his face anyway. <laughs> he could go in and get in line to be healed because he has, I believe it's cerebral palsy. And so he's usually wheelchair bound and and he can witness the way the people who actually do need healing, who go to these services, you know, desperate for true healing yeah. because they have real physical inf- infirmities and they really need healing, are shunted to the back of the line, not allowed to go you know, up on stage, they're usually, you know, directed somewhere else or whatever. And and he's had it happen. He's seen it happen. And they fake it. It's all fake. None of it's real. And so I wanted to bring that up because I thought they did a very good job in this movie of showing, you know, how easy it is to fake that kind of stuff and have people believe it. 
And then it also brought to mind Acts 8, which you mentioned, Simon, Mm -hmm. the sorcerer earlier on, because as a possible source for Gnosticism. But he, in Scripture, in Acts 8, 18 through 23, this is after Jesus is ascended and is no longer present, but the apostles are doing miracles in the name of Christ. And he sees that when they lay their hands on new believers, the Spirit comes And so he's jealous of this movement of the Spirit. And so he says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in the ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And that is Acts eight eighteen through 23. And I think that that is, you know, a lot of these so-called biblical leaders and faith healers, they're doing it for the money. They're doing it for the fame. And their heart is not right. And I don't feel like I have the authority to call them out personally, but there are Christian leaders who do, and I applaud them for doing so because their public hypocrisy needs to be called out publicly because of the amount of people that are being led astray by it. Yeah, I'm a cessationist, which essentially means that I think miracles essentially stopped with the apostles. It is another one of those topics where I am content to be wrong and look forward to <laughs> I agree finding with you. out. I'm also, I'm also a cessationist, so we agree on that one. <laughs> I have a good friend who comes from a Pentecostal background. He's mm-hmm. a, a theology professor at Regent, and he's not a cessationist. He, he holds to a much more spiritually active, demonically active worldview when it comes to interaction, but I respect him immensely. But I want to say, if God wants to heal you, if it is in God's will that you will be cured of even the most incredible, uncurable illnesses, you will be healed. Ain't no two ways about it. God will heal you. God can heal you. God will heal you if it's in his desire to do so. Yeah. I don't believe in faith healers. Yeah. (laughs) We're not saying that healing doesn't happen because God doesn't do it. God can do it if he wants to. But we're saying all the faith healers we're familiar with are (laughs) quacks. Yep. Yeah. They're in it for money. And they're Mm. just like the Peter said to Simon, you know, they are going to have to repent of their wickedness and pray to God in hopes that he will forgive them for what they're doing. So that's a hard thing to say. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to point out from the political nature of this movie is that the book of Clarence got the whole Messiah problem wrong. So, and I wasn't sure exactly how to niggled at me too. and, And I understand the point they were trying to make because their commentary with this movie was political commentary. The government is out to get us. In this instance, however, when it comes to who was crucifying messiahs, it was not the Roman Empire. (laughs) It was the Jewish religious leaders. And I know that that is one of those, I guess, 
criticisms of Christianity that we blame the Jews for Christ's crucifixion. Mm-hmm. But it is biblical. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's biblical. That is what the Bible says, that the Jewish yeah. leaders had Jesus crucified. But that doesn't mean that we hold it against the Jews you know, as a people. day Jews. Yeah. 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 We, all of us belong to ethnic groups and political groups who have done crappy things in the past. Yeah. So, you know, glass houses and all that. I'm going to summarize some of this because it's it's super long and I didn't want to read the whole thing. So I do encourage you to go read, starting in John 18, where, where Jesus goes uh, before Pilate. Pilate came to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? So it was it was on the authority of the Jewish leaders, the high priest servants and all that Jesus was arrested. And so when he goes up to trial before Pilate, he asks the question of the Jewish leaders, what charge do you bring on him? And they said, well, if you weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And then he says, well, you take and judge them according to your law. And I might as well just go ahead and read this. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? And then Jesus goes on to discuss with him the fact that he's a king, but his kingdom isn't of this world. And they have a discussion about truth. And then after they had this discussion, Pilate goes back out to the Jews and he says, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at Passover. Who do you want? And they say they want Barabbas. And so he has him flogged and and he you know, puts the crown of thorns on his head and he brings him out and says, he says, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I have found no grounds for charging him. The chief priests and the temple servants saw him and they shouted, crucify, crucify. Mm. So Pilate, Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. And the Jews said, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard the statement, he was more afraid than ever. And he went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? So, yeah, I mean... This whole phrase, and it goes all the way down to verse 16. I'm, I'm in chapter 19 now. So it's, it's the whole trial and crucifixion of Christ. You see over and over again that Pilate doesn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Pilate doesn't see any grounds for charging him with a death penalty. And the Jews keep telling him, no, you have to crucify him. According to our law, you have to crucify him. And so it is biblical that there was no political movement to destroy and kill Messiahs, which is what is in the book of Clarence, you know, the Roman says, I have this order from, you know, whoever, that I'm supposed yeah. to arrest and crucify all of the messiahs. And that was not. Maybe it's hearkening back to when Christ was born and Herod ordered, you know, all the boys under two killed. But that had nothing to do with messiahs. He was worried that, you know, somebody would Jesus displace gonna... him as king. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he killed this is a guy who killed his own son. So <laughs> and he was like, yeah, he killed yeah. multiple sons, didn't he? Yeah. He's like, he didn't want anyone displacing him as being king. So, yeah. But yeah, that wasn't even Roman. That was King Herod was 
technically the Jewish king. Yeah. He was a puppet. Well, that's yeah. probably not even accurate. Yeah. He he was placed in power by Rome. Much like many of the conquerors before had done, you know, like. Yeah, exactly. When you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, when Israel and Judah started falling to invaders. Mm hmm. They would take one king off the throne and put him in prison, and they'd put someone else on the throne in his place. Yeah. So they did that a lot. I think Herod had a Jewish mom. I was trying to remember now which Herod this was. But anyway. I seem to remember you're right. Yeah. So he had some claim, theoretically, to a Jewish throne. But anyway, needless to say, there was no political movement against Messiah. Now, there was a political movement against rebels. But mm-hmm. Jesus didn't classify as a rebel because he wasn't leading anybody in a political or a physical rebellion. And Rome didn't see anything wrong with what he was doing. Because even as he told Pilate, he says, my kingdom isn't of this world. I'm not in any way trying to destroy your authority. And because of that, he won a rebel. And so that was the only thing that Rome would have had against Jesus. And, and it's really interesting because in the book of Clarence, Clarence and Elijah are are envying the apostles because they are protected. And he feels like if he could become an apostle, then he will be protected too. And he won't have to worry about his debts to the crime lord <laughs> in the city. <laughs> Very modern story. Yeah, they, they made the apostles and Christ out to be a gang. Yeah, but they were a protected gang, you know, that nobody could touch them. And that was just not the case at all. And so there was just so much that was false in the portrayal of Mm. the politics of that era. That's what we do. We apply the Bible to things. And so I just wanted to set the record straight because it really bothered me. I was like, the Romans weren't going around like rounding up messiahs and crucifying them. That was not a political movement for them. That was not anything even on their radar. Now, Barabbas, who I'm not entirely sure whether the Barabbas that's in the movie is supposed to be the same Barabbas that's yeah, mentioned. I, I wasn't sure either. Yeah. The Barabbas, the murderer, you know, that I vaguely remember here hearing that he was also a revolutionary. Yeah. he, The one that was sprung in Jesus' place. place. Yeah. So I feel like he's intended to be that one. Yeah, definitely possible. Because the way he made it look like that he wanted to fight to to free Clarence. And so... Yeah. I feel like if they wanted to drive that point home, they should have shown him getting arrested. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because as we've already established earlier in our discussion, Jesus hadn't been arrested yet. Exactly. There would still have been time for Barabbas to have been captured and... Mm and then released in Jesus's place. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know where they were going with that, but they did have a character in this movie that was named Barabbas. And yeah. he was, he was kind of like, uh, Who Clarence's knows, enforcer. A, was like John, John Smith. <laughs> yeah. Just a real popular name. Yeah. Unlike Clarence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the book of Clarence, I think is a great example of why you really need to approach these movies critically. Yeah. And, yeah. and really give thought. Yeah, don't shut your brain off and don't use this as your story of how things happened in Jerusalem during the time of Christ because oh, wow. it's completely <laughs> <Can> off. <you laughs> imagine? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was an interesting and entertaining movie. I did laugh at some of it. Yeah, I did too. I don't think it was not funny. 
So one of the movies that Tim suggested we oh, do for one. this month was Asteroid City. And I watched it on Prime, and it's supposed to be a comedy. I don't think I laughed once in the entire movie. It was awful. <laughs> I was like, you want to review this? <laughs> oh, I, I thought you were talking about the creator, where we went in thinking, oh, this is going to have good yeah. content. Yeah. No, really, no. My brother asked me about that movie. Did you see the creator? I was like, yeah, it was awful. <laughs> he was like, really? I was like, yeah, it was awful. It was, it was just, it wasn't worth watching. He says, I was afraid of that. <laughs> but yeah, we had discussed doing Asteroid City and it's on Prime right now and I'd never heard of it. And so I watched it to see whether it would be one worth reviewing. And it was really bad. It was <laughs> objectionably bad. And I can't believe that they thought it was a comedy because there was, it was a cleverly framed story. Let's put it that way. But it was awful. <laughs> don't watch it, Asteroid City. Just don't watch don't it. It's not Eve. Yeah. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> That's why we're not doing a review of it, because I would not have been nice. <laughs> All right. So hopefully the pickings in the theater gets better for February, because we got to figure out what we're going to do after this one. And I'm I hoping Madam Webb is decent. Yeah. The story that it's based on in Marvel Comics, I had recently read through when I heard they were making it. If they do it justice, it has a chance, but I don't know how they're going to fit it into a two-hour movie. So we'll see. That comes out in February sometime. I don't know when, though. Yeah. I did mention Tim Chafee. If you don't know who he is, he is a... Wonderful author. Yeah, he's a wonderful author. He's a content developer that works for Answers in Genesis. And he's got a movie review program that he now does on Answers TV. Ah, competition! Yeah, so... <laughs> and I recommend it. Their discussions are a little shorter than ours. So if you like shorter <laughs> discussions, and you have to subscribe to Answers TV to to see them. But it is a video program instead of a podcast. And... And they have dealt with some of the same movies we've done and and some different ones as well. And he has some really good stuff on YouTube on the topic of the Nephilim. He actually let me read his paper. So the show that's on Answers TV, if you want to go look it up, is called Tilt Shift. And it's uh, amazing, amazing, analyzing movies from a Christian worldview. They basically do the same thing we do. But since he suggested this movie for us, I want to make sure our listeners know about his show. I, I don't view him as competition. I view him as more people doing what all Christians should be doing, and that is approaching their entertainment with a Christian worldview and not just shutting their brains off. And so do check that out. The more people who do it, the better. <laughs> all righty. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts christianpodcastcommunity.org.